Dispatch. This is Asatrishthi. My name is Zach McCann Armitage. This is uh, our second show of the Juice Dispatch, which is a show about local civic journalism. And we're excited for what we have in store for you today. Yes, we're still ironing things out to the best of our ability, but we're in it. So, what do we have planned for today's hour? We're going to talk about housing in the Northern Community Land Trust. We're going to talk about a City of Whitehorse update um, about City Hall expansion, as well as some comments you received from them about sidewalks and accessibility, uh, which is a story we did for our previous show on Sunday when Councillor Friesen called in. Um, what else do we have, Zach? The Yukon government just announced a Whitehorse Downtown Community Safety Action Plan this Friday, so we're going to have maybe a little bit of a back-and-forth chat discussion about that. And then I have been doing a little story about the local Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as Mor the Mormon Church here in Whitehorse. And so we'll finish off with that. Um, yeah. That's the way the cookie crumbles, <laughs> as, as Bruce Almighty says. So with that, maybe we jump right into our first, first segment of the show. Yeah, sure. Housing is a problem, you know, everywhere in this, in this country. Um, and it seems like a uniquely challenging problem in the Yukon and the city of Whitehorse, not just because of the cost of construction, uh, the materials that have to be shipped up here, um, the, not just because of the skilled worker shortages or even the length of construction season. Uh, everything costs more, often takes longer, and sometimes you're relying on a very specific people to show up for the job, and they're not necessarily available. The National Housing Strategy, Canada's first, was announced in November 2017. The goal, ensure everyone has access to housing that meets their needs and one that they can afford. Um, it defined, you know, it goes out to say that housing is essential to the inherent dignity and well-being of the person and to building sustainable and inclusive communities. In 2019, Parliament passed the National Housing Strategy Act, setting out the Government of Canada's housing policy. It recognizes the right to adequate housing is a fundamental human right affirmed in international law. We've got a lot of different players working on that here locally, municipally at that level. Safe at Home Society, which was formed to address the gap of streamlining the process of finding housing for people experiencing homelessness and focusing on ending homelessness. They reported earlier this month that there are at least 100 people in Whitehorse who will not feel safe where they're sleeping tonight. The number of people who are not well housed is beyond that. That is not just a number. A uh, hundred often, you know, like I think we throw numbers around and, you know, each of those are individuals capable of complex thoughts and feelings just as you and I are. Housing insecurity can take many different forms. It can include couch surfing. Um, you know, it can include being out on the street, accessing the, sh accessing the shelter. 
anything that is unsafe, uncomfortable, inadequate, or unstable um, is part of the definition of what housing insecurity is. Earlier this month, the Yukon Anti-Poverty Coalition, Voices Influencing Change, which is a program for people with lived experience of homelessness, poverty, and other forms of social inclusion, um, that's been an ongoing project since 2017, um, Blood Ties for Direction, which is our local harm reduction center, uh, whose mission is to eliminate barriers and create opportunities for people to have equal access to health and wellness and to live in our city with dignity. Earlier this month, on December 6th, we attended their Partners for Progress, Dialogue and Action on Housing and Supports. It was the follow-up to their Let Our Voice Be Heard. It was a full day with conversations around the table with Yukon Housing Corporation and some team members from Health Services. We're hoping to do some more, more work with them in the new year to report back. The Yukon Housing Corporation delivers community housing and programs that address the housing needs of Yukon residents. What does that mean exactly? Stay tuned and we'll report back. The CMHC, which is the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, contributes to Canada's housing systems, sustainability and stability through our commercial programs, research and data. They just put out their Northern Housing Report. The median rent for a two bedroom in Whitehorse is just over $1,400. Vacancy rate continues to hover just below 1% at 0.8%. Today, we're focusing on a new-ish group of volunteers, the Not-for-Profit Society, the Northern Community Land Trust, who are working to build a portfolio of permanently affordable housing across the Yukon. All right. Specifically, our first project is 32 units um, of permanently affordable ownership housing in Whistlebend. I'm Tyler Heal. I guess like in my professional life, I'm a structural engineer working on a variety of buildings and housing and everything else in the Yukon um, in Western Canada. Um, and also uh, as a volunteer, work with the Northern Community Land Trust Society, who's working to develop some permanently affordable housing here in Yukon. That um, like, it, yeah, energy efficiency, totally an important thing. But I also, I like, somebody told me this once and it's like a really nice like step back to like reframe this whole like sustainability discussion that like for um, like, when you talk about like reduce, reuse, recycle, it's easy to forget that that's actually like a ranked like hierarchy of a list that like, you don't just like recycling's great, but like the bigger part of it is like reduce. Um, and I think that same like hierarchy like exists for like building sustainability with like the first question being like, do you need this thing? <laughs> like like the most, the most sustainable building in a way is like maybe the one that doesn't get built if it doesn't need to be. And then out of that, like, okay, do you need it? Yes. Um, can it be smaller or can we like reuse something that's like that exists already um, and like make do with that? Um, and then I think once you go through a few of those steps, you get into the, the, the like design decisions of like, can we make this more energy efficient? Like, can we insulate it better? Can we choose a more like durable building envelope so that it lasts for a really long time? Um, can we use materials that have low embodied carbon um, in them? Like, that part of like in it in for a building's footprint it's both the emissions that you're throughout its life as you're heating it and providing hot water and electricity and everything for it but it's also i think as you start to get those amounts down like the what they call like operational carbon um it actually becomes more and more important like a bigger part of the total like life cycle impact of that building or structure is like the materials that you put into building it in the first place too um but yeah i always find it's like an, uh, uh, like to step back like the framing is like 
reduce do you like do you need this in the first place like can it be smaller before you get into like really optimizing the design so that was tyler hale who was one of the founding members founding board members of the northern community land trust and we had a long wide-ranging talk um you know, about how it seems like the square footage per house uh, has gone up over the decades, so houses are much larger, what that means in terms of energy efficiency, space heating, water heating, questions like those. Um, and Tyler will be joined, uh, will be followed after his clip with uh, conversations with Sarah Newton, who's doing some work on uh, ground heat pumps. To try and think through some of the problems with housing that you know we could build a, an asset for this community so my name is uh sarah newton i have been uh an environmental and indigenous rights activist uh for well 13 years since moving up to whitehorse and um i'm uh an environmental scientist. I've worked at the uh, Northern Energy Innovation Center housed at Yukon University and am currently conducting research on uh, ground source heat pumps uh, using geothermal energy for, um, for heating homes. You know, building in the north has, uh, first of all, a bit of a logistical challenge. I think a lot of the materials that we're looking to source are from the south in the timber in um some of like the windows and the materials and so there's always that kind of barrier that we don't have the local capacity to create the materials that we need to build all the housing that we need um and that is that's hard it's hard in whitehorse but it's even harder when you're looking further north um, to communities in the northwest territories in nunavut where a lot of their materials are coming in by barge i think some of the opportunities also are in um in building design um so one of the things that i've learned working with northern energy innovation center is the articulation of the buildings can have a really a big impact on um, how much heat is lost. So mm. actually rectangular buildings with not a lot of like little parts that are sticking out and everything is really, is actually pretty good for energy efficiency. You're going to lose a lot if you have like little nooks and crannies or like um, parts of the building where two or three faces of the building are, are to the outside, for instance. Right. The room um and the other thing is uh what we've tried to do with the northern community land trust building is to maximize the uh passive solar game um so we've actually got a really unique design concept where the buildings are there's two buildings and they're each in a bit of a half circle that are um offset from each other and that means that and each of the units has like a front and a back. So each of them has a, a side that's facing south. Like there's no buildings that don't get that, that south facing sun. And that's so critical in the wintertime because, you know, the sun pretty much rises in the south 
east and sets in the southwest. So if you're on the north side of the building in an apartment, then, you know, there can be like a whole season where you barely see the sun from your house. Just having that light, that natural light is so good for our mental health and it allows you to keep, you know, certain tropical plants that need that light as well, you know, that we like to have in our in our houses that help um, provide a boost of oxygen and everything like that. So like there's a lot of I think, you know, as we move towards energy efficiency, there's going to be a lot of benefits in our health and well-being as well. Like climate anxiety is a really important, like really interesting thing because there's this point where you can get really frozen in fear and apathy. But if you don't have any climate anxiety, you're not motivated to do anything about it. So the more people that start feeling the type of anxiety that I've been dealing with for, for 15 years, the more people are starting to, to think about this, to make changes in their life. Like you can see companies are making changes and, you know, I've, I'm probably more hopeful than I have been in a long time. And it's because all these bad things are happening, which is mm-hmm. backwards, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the Northern Community Land Trust is piloting out this affordable housing, a rent-to-own plan, and we'll hopefully hear about them and follow along in the new year as they put out applications and see who's interested. Um, yeah, very curious to follow along. Yeah, that sounds very cool. So, um, last week, if you didn't catch our show, we uh, had an interview with uh, City Councilor um, Michelle Friesen about uh, specifically the issue of accessibility and snow and ice control and the city's uh, responsibilities and um, dealing with uh, snow and ice control in the winter. And so I had sent out some additional questions for the city um, and administration um, regarding the new funding that was approved on December 11th. They got approved by council for $220,000 and a $30,000 policy review. So I did hear back uh, via their their communications manager, O'Shea Jeffson, and um, so my first question, uh, first and second question was really about this amount of $220,000 and, uh, what, what, uh, where that number came from, uh, and if there was a possible breakdown for how that money is going to get spent and their response is quote, well, the motion was independent of the analysis. There was a breaking quote here, uh, and then with some brackets, there is an <laughs> administrative report uh, presented by the um, city staff to the council on December 4th that had this number in it as well. Um, well, 
Okay. So while the motion is independent of the analysis presented on December 4th, the motion has a similar intent. As part of its analysis presented on December 4th, administration suggested it would cost approximately $220,000 to clear individual accessible parking spots. However, this also this approach also came with a number of setbacks, including impacts on adjacent stalls, the creation of hazardous conditions, and the risk of additional clearing in case conditions deteriorated. So the money identified as part of the motion, however, will be used to support overall accessibility efforts, including through enforcement and operations and administration, is considering how to best allocate those funds, end quote. Um, so of note here is the forefronting of that word enforcement, which presumably refers to more uh, bylaw officers enforcing the sidewalk clearing bylaws, um, putting which is the to be clear that landlords and businesses are responsible for ensuring sidewalks and ramps in front of their place of business is are cleared by 11 a.m. the day following a snowfall. And uh, we've heard um, from a lot of delegates that this is kind of um, done sort of inconsistently uh, by different businesses. Some businesses use... Uh, property management companies and some just do it themselves and et cetera. So it's, it's not a consistent thing. Um, Ted Laking, Councillor Ted Laking, also had this to say about that specific amount. The two, 220 was arrived at from an administrative briefing note that was provided to council as a week as previous as an estimate of what it would cost to enhance accessibility. Uh, I purposely was not specific in the breakdown of the dollars in the motion as I wanted administration to have the greatest flexibility possible to deal with the situation. That said, the motion, uh, sorry, a little typo there. Ted. Uh, that said, the motion is just at a high level put direction on what the money should be spent on. For example, improving accessibility on sidewalks, parking spaces. So uh, this is kind of just confirmation that that $220,000 is not broken down. It seems to be an arbitrary number in this context. Um, my other questions were if the city had any current staff and accessibility advocacy or advisory roles, staff or committees. Um, and I, they kind of misinterpreted my um, question. They, they said that there's no currently no person or committee that provides advice to the council or administration specifically on snow and ice control accessibility. I was asking more generally, but... Um, yeah. Um, so following up that, I did some research. This, so the city does have an inclusivity committee uh, who make, quote, recommendations to Whitehorse City Council on issues related to inclusivity, diversity, and accessibility within the city of Whitehorse. Um, oh, <clears throat> at uh, the council on November 6th, um, Lindsay Schneider, the director of people and culture of the city, uh, said this about the committee that um, the topic was brought up in the sense that it was something to be looked at sorry this is quotes and the work plan was never finalized in committee so we hadn't got that far into the committee process before they only had six meetings and then I'm not sure what happened with the committee uh, if it dissolved or that was the plan so um, that's why this topic was not brought up to the city uh, in the form of a work plan or a concrete thing. And so 
to be clear, like that, um, that committee would have addressed this supposedly, hypothetically, um, in its work to more accessibility in the city's planning and policies. But now we have this $30,000 review instead of, uh, the work that, um, was already expected of, of something like the inclusivity committee. So that's sort of my follow-up. Other things that happened, um, on Wednesday, there was a, uh, another action in support of Palestine, this time um, outside of uh, Member of Parliament Brendan Hanley's office. I attended that very briefly. There was about 20 people there. It was an interesting experience. Uh, Dr. Hanley actually uh, came out to speak with folks. MP Hanley has, has kind of consistently... Um, called for specifically the uh, language of a humanitarian ceasefire. Like a humanitarian pause. Oh, humanitarian pause, yes. And uh, doesn't, yeah, it it was uh, some folks at the the action were calling on him to use language, like specifically that the Israeli state has been consistent in its usage of genocidal language and and to admit that publicly um, in which he did not and it sounded pretty tense like you know like it sounded quite tense like mp handley did come out of his office to meet the people who had gathered yeah and and so so when he did kind of speak up there's i guess some shouting over him and People were asking him to address specific things that he wasn't prepared to speak to, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, also posted that he met with some members of the local Muslim community. So we'll we'll report back as that story develops. Yes. Uh, two quick things I wanted to mention before we talk about the downtown Whitehorse Community Safety Action Response Plan. <laughs> try saying that quick, um, is that the city of Whitehorse's capital expenditure program budget is uh, currently having its readings uh, before before being approved. And uh, we'll we'll dive into that. Um, You know, the expenditure program looks at annual costs for things like, you know, the municipal election is coming up. How much is that going to cost us? Uh, $150,000, $500,000. Um, engineering services. Um, you know, how much human resources is going to cost us? And then also fleet and transportation maintenance. Um, you know, the budget items for things like sidewalk repairs are in there. Um, water and waste services, land and building services, property management. Like, it's, it's a long list. Um, and... Three days ago, on Solstice as well, Wednesday, the city of Whitehorse uh, put out a statement that they have awarded a contract to Johnston Builders for the first phase of a two-phase design-build project to expand the administration wing of the Whitehorse Operations Building. This comes after, like, you know, months of looking at whether the current city hall was going to be renovated and and what would happen there, um, and ultimately the new operations building which was built and designed with an expansion in mind that will um that will expand and uh 
the city's website says update says this project is an example of future thinking that benefits employees improves how we deliver services and reduces the impact on taxpayers um we'll follow up on the story yeah to see what people have to say on this to be clear the operations building is the one up on the top of two mile hill yeah 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 off of range road yeah right right by the horse uh anyways um Right. So on Friday, the um, Yukon government premier, Raj Pillai, and Minister of Health and Social Services, Tracy Ann McPhee, um, at a press conference, they announced uh, a downtown Whitehorse safety response action plan. And this kind of represents the government's response to the current intersection of various social issues surrounding the Whitehorse Emergency Shelter that has gotten uh, a lot of attention recently. Um, um, And it basically outlines, uh, divides things into three of actions that they have already done or committed to. um, And then things that they're planning to do within a year's time and then things they're planning to do uh, beyond a year. And this is all for the sake of creating a vibrant and inclusive, safe downtown for all. Um, Yeah, so I guess we're just going to maybe riff a little bit about what the specific items that's included in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it makes sense to go backwards from quote-unquote long-term uh, and work our way work our way back sure um, so there was a letter that you know one of the local businesses north northwest class wrote to the premier and it specifically asked for things to be broken down into a timeline of what and when you know things were being delivered so the categories on this one pager which you can access off of yukon.ca are completed medium term which is one to 12 months and long term which is uh you know beyond a year and the long-term category has review accessibility policies for emergency housing facilities and diversify the options that exist to meet support needs which in this instance the accessibility policies are specifically referring to you know whether the shelter is going to be a low barrier shelter, you know, whether, um, you know, people who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol or what have you um, can access these services. And that's what the accessibility question here is like, do we have higher barriers in terms of who gets turned away? uh, Or is it a facility that tries to welcome as many people as possible. Yeah, and when it first opened under the management of the Salvation Army, it was a higher barrier. That's right. Um, So Salvation Army handed it over to the government. The government handed it over to Connective, which was formerly known as the John Howard Society. Um, It is not a local society. They're based out of Vancouver or Lower Mainland BC. And some other questions from, or the other points from the long-term component are working with private sector partners to bring more affordable housing online quickly and building more YHC, Yukon Housing Corporation, community housing units to alleviate the wait list and by name late list pressures. Yeah. Anything in there that jumps out for you, Zach? Yeah. Um, More generally about the actual action plan itself. So... It doesn't really succinctly articulate the specific problems that it's talking about, uh, that all of this, um, that 
all of these actions are trying to address, um, other than the recurring phrase of challenges related to homelessness, addiction, and community safety, um, which, you know, it's, it seems geared towards reassuring businesses and or uh, I don't know, people outside the Yukon who are, so they, they, they use this uh, recurring language of like ensuring that downtown Whitehorse remains a welcoming place. They help keep Whitehorse a place where residents and feel uh, residents and visitors feel safe and working to enhance the safety, health and overall feeling of well-being in the community. So it's it's kind of like saying there's nothing wrong, but here's all the things that we're going to do to fix <laughs> uh, stuff. The substance use health emergency isn't mentioned in it, uh, which was declared in January of 2022. Um, according to uh, the Yukon government itself, the territory has the highest per capita death rate for illicit drugs in the country right now. So um, not bringing that into the context of this community white horse safety response action plan seems um, kind of strange. Um not grounding it in, in those these specific contexts. The other things that I um, kind of picked out was, I think it's in the medium term category, is the mention of decentralizing services downtown and a mention of food services. So I wonder if that means that they will try to relinquish or that the emergency shelter will try to uh, transition to just being a shelter and not actually providing food services. And I feel like this idea of decentralization is, is, um, not putting so much pressure and, uh, focus on one specific, um, location downtown, one specific space. Um, the other thing that caught my eye was that, um, they want to uh, do some urban design work on Alexander Street uh, using this principle of crime prevention through environmental design, which from my understanding involves like beautification and increased like maintenance and surveillance of the area so as to deter criminal activities with visual and physical cues um, of the spaces larger communal usage by by everybody so that you're more likely to get caught essentially if you commit a crime um, is the idea which yeah and I, I think my in kind of intuitive feeling about that is it would just further displace or alienate people from feeling agency from the vulnerable people that use that space from feeling agency if there's just a bunch of I don't know, new infrastructure, like whether it's uh, street furniture or, you know, beautification things that are used, um, like are people, are the vulnerable people of, of users of the shelter still going to feel uh, comfortable in that space? Yeah, that's my question regarding that. Something else that was uh, stood out for me was uh, in the medium term category, initiating a new Canada Yukon housing benefit rent subsidy for people fleeing gender based violence. Um, my understanding of this, as uh, told by someone who's from here, who's 
um, has a better understanding of Yukon housing is that, you know, if, if as a single parent, you're often bumped higher on the list and we'll confirm this for subsequent shows, but like that little rent subsidy for people fleeing gender-based violence, they're just like questions around how do they monitor that? Um, I think usually there's some semblance of someone needs to attest that they've witnessed that you're in not a great situation or so that definitely stood out that seemed promising and i think with a lot of things uh when government tells you uh especially around downtown safety is like you know i think we've heard things before um is is the sense that i've gotten from people we've heard things before but let's see you know whether they can deliver on time yeah and i'd say like uh what this represents if it represents anything at all is at least um an offer of transparency of what the government is planning on doing um which is what sort of the 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 um local businesses and and the public have asked for is a transparency in in how they're going to be dealing with this problem problems yeah. Yeah, and whether people with lived experience how involved in the process and at the table they're going to be. Yes. Yeah. So there, yeah. There's there's mention of a, a bunch of consultant firms that will be doing stuff, but I wonder about their methodologies and stuff. So stay tuned and we'll report back on that story. Christ of Latter-day Saints um, and the local uh, congregation here. This is part of our, uh, in terms of our in our specific objectives with this whole show, I, this would be categorized as, as a, w- w- part of the community engagement interest that we're we're pursuing how different communities within our community are engaging with the larger city and stuff. Any, any thoughts? Yeah. Just that, you know, Whitehorse is a very remarkable place as those of us who are fortunate enough to call it home. know. um, there are a lot of different faith based communities here. Um, you know, a, a lot of whom now have infrastructure, like the Yukon Muslim Society site turned five this fall. They used to be based out of the United Church prior to that. Uh, the Sikh uh, Gurdwara opened in 2020 and, you know, had a bunch of water issues, plumbing issues. Um, but, you know, they've been ready in time for Diwali. There's a strong Baha'i community here. Um, there's a sizable contingent of Buddhists here. Um, if you Google church or Whitehorse church, you know, you get over a dozen results of different denominations. And one of them is the Church of Latter-day Saints. And Zach will tell us more. 
Yes. Missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, they prefer the or they do not prefer to be known as Mormons. Um, so I will be respecting that, their, their request to uh, not refer them to, refer them as Mormons. But um, they've begun a new outreach strategy to spread their message and to offer up their help for acts of service in the community. So the local church here, it... Um, hosts young missionaries from across uh, the world, actually, uh, who you might have seen going around door knocking, offering to perform chores, yard work, other forms of service directly for individuals that they meet throughout their stay here. And a Facebook post by one missionary caught my eye on the Yukon Helpers Network a couple of weeks ago, and I decided to follow up with him. Um, And so this is Elder Connor Cottle, originally from Utah. As missionaries, uh, we try to just see how we can involve the community, right, in the church, and just help one another to kind of grow in the community, because uh, that's what we're here to do, is to serve. And so when we're thinking about that, there's lots of ways that we can reach out to people on the streets, or we can go to their homes, and technology is becoming bigger and bigger. And so we thought, oh, Facebook might be good. Yeah. And we saw these local groups, and so we thought, oh, maybe if we can offer some church tours, just kind of get people involved in, in a stress-free kind of environment. And so we thought Con Helpers would be a good spot to start. Um, so the church building in Whitehorse, it's uh, across the river from the downtown White waterfront. And uh, it's cl- so close to the bustle of traffic of Front Street and to the library and the cultural uh, the Kwanlin Don Cultural Center and the shops on May Street. But it's the closeness is... Uh, made far by the the river between them and um, before their current um, building was built in 1980 it's a very interesting building um, it's very uniquely designed with intricate wooden pa- paneling in the interior um, it, so it was built in 1980 and it was this was part of a larger investment and push from um, the larger church to expand 11 other churches across the northern BC, Yukon, and Alaska. Um, Before this, meetings were held in the old Masonic Hall, and baptisms uh, were actually performed at the Takini Hot Springs, which is a kind of cool, fun fact. Um, So to fundraise for the new building, members volunteered delivering Yukon electric bills, selling their baked goods at bake sales at various community events. They used to have an annual float at the Canada Day Parade, and they sold tickets for the sourdough rendezvous as well. So these are all not just examples like from a more community or collaborative era from the church, but... um, it's also examples of collaborations and relationships that were also cultivated as necessities for the church as well. Um, once their their church was funded and built and then expanded actually in 1990, their need to be so directly in relationship with the outside community definitely was lessened and they could rely on their own sort of community and resources within the church. Um, So today, branch president Andrew Swenson insists that the sign outside the church that says visitors welcome remains important tenant to the congregation. Our meetings are open to the public. Um, 
we invite everyone to come and, and to be part of our me meetings and to um, strengthen us as well, right? Yeah. Because um, having people people come um, adds to our congregation, and in turn, we become a more uh, strengthened community. So the main form of community outreach today for the church is is through the work that the missionaries do. Um, they're set to volunteer with the Yukon Quest this year, but um, press for more specifics about other planned partner-based volunteering in the community. Um, Branch President Swenson admits that. Um, as far as uh, charities and organizations, at this time there is there is not. Um, we're certainly open to having those conversations and would really absolutely love to. Yeah. Um, so if, if there's anyone out there, um, come, come see me. I'd love to yeah. talk. Um, uh, local member Amy Hrabian, who grew up in the Whitehorse congregation, um, says... I think as a whole, I, I think we could be more involved. And a lot of that, I think, is just, I mean, families moving away and to the local membership. A lot of them are getting older, so they're just not getting out and doing as much. <laughs> but um, there's not very many families with... Uh, with kids anymore. I mean, when I grew up too, like my mom was the oldest of seven children oh. and her entire family lived here. I really wish we were more involved in the community and sometimes we struggle with finding ways to do that because some people don't have a very good opinion of the church. Um, Rebian notes specifically about the, the church's stance on uh, LGBTQ marriage in which queer members of the church are expected to stay single. Uh, so Caribbean um, follows up. And I mean, I can't speak for the church as a whole, um, but I mean, obviously there's some aspects of church doctrine that, that I don't understand, and I don't know if I ever will understand. Um, but I do understand that it makes other people uncomfortable. So despite this, the, the church does indisputably provide important social supports, um, even to its own community. Um, yeah, they have a, a kind of social internally, internal social support system within their membership. One of the things about the church is like, it does have like its own, um, like social services and stuff like that. I mean, we don't have a lot of that here in town, but like if I, as a member, um, if something happened and I was sick and stuff like that, like the church would actually uh, help me pay my rent. Um, so that's Amy Rebian again. And um, the, the three missionaries that I met, um, they're very sincere and committed to this principle of service. And that can, can include much more than just knocking on doors and trying to convert people um, so that they... Uh, they just, they go and meet and talk to people, uh, helping people move, um, doing yard work and snow shoveling, um, and they're very open and committed to that. Um, there's over 60,000 missionaries serving in the church right now, including that's young men and women and elder couples. Um, missionaries are always paired together with one or two companions, uh, as they're called, and they serve four to six months in a branch and are transferred around different branches into the larger uh, stake or area by a mission president one at a time. And then they're oriented and given the ropes of the community by another missionary who's already been serving in the local area. Um, 
so Joseph Beasley, uh, one of the missionaries, um, <clears throat> talks about uh, adapting to um, to moving from place to place, the things you do to adapt. And we're taught, uh, just mission-wide and worldwide, certain skills that help us do that, ways that we can interact with people that will be most effective. Um, but like you said, it has to be adapted to local needs. Every place is different. And so, obviously, though, it really helps to have someone who's had that experience in that area. They know the lingo. They know how you should, um, certain political things that we should watch out for, cultural things, and also just the people who are obviously there. And so they usually introduce. We try to avoid whitewashing, or it means taking out all the missionaries out of an area and putting in completely new missionaries. Right. Because that kind of interferes with that. Um, so what's a day in the life look like for a young uh, missionary of the church? Uh, so Connor Cottle, the first person uh, who is chatting with, um, breaks it down. We have kind of some different activities that are kind of like staples and yeah. the things that we do. And then there are other activities that we can do to get more involved or to try something new so that it doesn't get monotonous. Yeah. And we wake up and then we have some time for studying and then we have set apart time to plan the day and so during that time that we're planning we're looking um, around the area seeing where we might be able to go to either knock doors or if there's people we've met previously we'll see if we can go visit them right and then you know, if we have like game nights like we have on saturday right we'll, we'll do that and plan things around that into different locations but we're given a lot of leeway as to when we do things, what we do. Uh, so we're able to pray before we start our planning and see where the Lord wants to take us. Um, so Facebook's not the only use of technology that the church uses. Uh, the congreg congregation has also utilized a camera and live stream setup for their Sunday meetings uh, for the benefit of members who live outside of Whitehorse in various uh, communities. And this is uh, this has been for years before the normalization of digital meetings during COVID. Um, here's Branch President Swenson talking about that. We uh, have or have had in the, in the past members um, in many of the communities, uh, Watson Lake, Farrell, Carmax, um, Dawson, uh, Beaver Creek. And uh, they've been blessed um, to be able to have our, our meetings um, broadcast through, through technology for, for many, many years. Cool. Um, and we're blessed, certainly, by them um, yeah. tuning in and, and even taking part in our meetings from, from their various uh, locations. And besides geographical diversity, I'm also informed that the membership is composed of a diverse range of people, including uh, indigenous folks and people um, specifically, I think, from the Philippines. Um, so despite being tucked away from the river, from the downtown core, um, it, they continue to meet every Sunday and they have their little sign that says all visitors welcome if, if, uh, if you're ever interested. <laughs> that uh, concludes my little report. Great. Thank you, Zach, um, for following, following that thread and exploring it a little. And once again, 
as mentioned earlier, right before we start, like Whitehorse is home to so many different faiths. Um, you know, some of which I mentioned and others like the Jewish cultural, cultural society of the Yukon, um, you know, which was formed when they discovered that there was a Jewish cemetery in Dawson city. Um, and it's just really interesting. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can spend some time maybe looking at some historical census records at the Yukon archives, um, because all sorts of people showed up here, you know, as Dawson became Dawson and Whitehorse became Whitehorse, you know, um, after the first peoples who've lived here, um, you know, the people who arrived were of all sorts of faiths and backgrounds. Um, so that was a really interesting slice and snippet. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. Um, well, so what do we have? What do we have next? Our next show is on the 31st. On the 31st. Wow. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. We'll have to figure out if we can get people to call in or, or something in terms of their highlights and lowlights of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, best news, news stories of 2023, maybe. Something interesting, you know, we talked about the city of Whitehorse and Mayor Cabot just got back from Ottawa, um, you know, and it was interesting because, you know, my understanding is she went in part to try and secure funds for climate stuff and housing. And I was just reading the comments, which is never a good idea. and specifically to the clay cliffs, you know, to the slides, you know, there were just like a lot of comments around, is it climate change, you, mm. you know, or like, isn't it just natural? Um, and it's, I think it's just like interesting to, you know, I, I think we have the signs up and around in terms of, you know, yes, wildfires are natural, but the scale of them is not, you know, yes, you know, mudslides are happening. Um, and they are natural, but how much of it is maybe not as natural, the, the frequency or scale of it. So, yeah, I'm hopeful about us exploring some of those topics even. Yeah, yeah. The um, I assume that's the White Horse Star comment section. That's okay. an accurate assumption. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of its own news source to itself, I feel like you can peruse. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's there's lots that will be happening in the new year uh, in terms of local civic journalism. Um, you know, the update on Raven Recycling once the city's operating budget is confirmed. Um, stuff like that. So stay tuned. Yeah. Hopefully you'll hear much more of our voices uh, through... 2024 that's right and once again we're at the juice dispatch uh on instagram the juice dispatch as well as our email is the juice dispatch at gmail.com so if you've got stories and even if you might think that they're non-stories we'll still take them we're very open to showing up hearing what you want us to report on and how we can better serve you as your community radio station, as your news reporters at your community radio station. So the juice dispatch at gmail.com and the juice dispatch on Instagram. 
okay well i think we'll end a little little early but that's that's all we got for today um thank you so much for listening take care this is zach and Nessa signing off on december 24th bye bye